Hello, my zippers and spoonies. Thanks for coming and hanging out with me today. I am glad that you are here. Today, I want to talk about the way that pain is managed or not while those with chronic illness are in the hospital. And a lot of what I have to say today will actually apply whether or not you have chronic illness and will apply to those people who have acute illness as well. But I'm still going to be focusing on those with chronic illness. The first reality that must be mentioned is that there is a significant inequity when it comes to pain management in our healthcare system. Women are less likely to get medicated for their pain than men, and there is less likely uh, to be adequate pain control. This is equally true if you're a person of color, and if you are a woman of color, you will face even more hurdles. There is also the reality that if you have a history of substance abuse, you will not likely be given any pain management at all. I find all of this completely disgusting as a nurse and completely infuriating as a patient. I've experienced this on both sides. I have seen patients that were not being well medicated and I couldn't account for it beyond their gender or their history of substance abuse. And I have been the patient in pain that has not been taken seriously. Um, I've been presenting in, in the ED and I have been told that I wasn't in enough pain in order to be a serious situation. When I dislocated my shoulder, I was told that it couldn't possibly be dislocated because I would not have been able to finish working my shift and I would not be able to be calm and coherent. And yet when they x-rayed it, there was a six inch separation in my shoulder and yet I was calm and coherent and had continued to work my 12-hour shift with this dislocated shoulder. <sighs> In general, I feel that there is a standard of disbelief and suspicion around a person having pain that is a provider's baseline, and it becomes the patient's responsibility to prove that they're in pain. Absolutely hate this culture, and I feel that it really needs to change. There are many assumptions about how a person will present when they're in pain that are simply untrue. And I have heard providers and nurses say things about pain presentation that I know are not true because they simply just don't line up with my personal experience with pain. And the challenge is that when you're in the hospital, you bring all of your medical problems with you, not just the one that needs hospitalization. And this means that your chronic pain is going to go with you and will need to be managed while you're in the hospital. So the first thing to know is that you have the right to adequate pain control. If the provider is not managing your pain, they must be able to adequately justify the reason for it. And there are times that it is dangerous to give people pain medication, but that is not usually what is going on when a doctor declines to write orders for, for pain control. If you are not getting pain control, request to speak with your doctor about this directly rather than having the nurse act as a go-between. Have a family member or a friend present when the doctor sees you. If possible, have that person be a male. As much as I don't like it, the reality is that them being a male will make it more likely that you will get what you need. Also, this is a time to consider recording your encounter with your provider. But be sure that you know the recording laws in your state. I have a post that's about that. You can go and check out my uh other podcasts listening and you can um, get more information about recording doctor's appointments and that all applies to when you're in the hospital as well. So the nursing standard of practice indicates that the 
pain is whatever the patient says it is. And that really means that a nurse is um, expected to use a standard scale when they're assessing a patient's pain. And those scales are usually something that the patient gives you the number for. Um, the one that's used most often is the numeric scale, and that is a simple scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the worst. The most the next most common is the phases scale, which is also a 1 to 10 numeric scale, but it includes the images at faces, um, you know, to help clarify how bad each of those numbers would be. There are also nonverbal pain scales that can be used, and they are worth being familiar with as they will educate you on what it is the healthcare providers are looking for as signs of having pain. So the FLAC is the most commonly used nonverbal pain scale. I personally hate the FLAC because it paints the picture that a patient pretty much has to be hysterical in order to be having a 10 on the pain scale. And the truth is that this is how many providers see pain. I know that you can be in severe pain and not be hysterical and that you don't have to present the way that this scale suggests. Granted, this scale was meant to be used to assess children, but it is often used to assess adults as well. And we don't really consider that adults and children present pain differently. And I personally don't feel that they do. And this scale just kind of makes my head hurt. So it's got five areas that you look at. It, you're looking at their facial expression, their legs, the general activity of their body, any sounds that they're making, and whether or not they need to be consoled. And then based on what you're seeing and how they're presenting in each of these areas, they can get a score of zero, one, or two. Then you're going to add those all up to get the total pain score so that the score can be anywhere from 0 to 10. So when you're looking at the face, you're looking for um, if they have no like particular expression or they're smiling and laughing, you would give them a 0. If they have an occasional grimace or the occasional frown or they're a little withdrawn or they're disinterested in their care, you would score them as a 1. Um, if they're frequently or constantly frowning, clenching their jaw, or they have a quivering chin, you would score them as a two. So when you're looking at their legs, if their legs are in a normal position or relaxed, you would give them a zero. If their legs are uneasy, I'm not really sure what uneasy means, uh, restless or tense, you would score a one. If their legs are kicking or drawn up, you would give them a two. For activity, if they're laying quietly in a normal position and they're moving around easily, you would give them a zero. If they're squirming, shifting back and forth, or tense, you would give them a one. If they have an arched back, are rigid, or jerking, you would give them a two. So under cry, if they have no crying, whether they're awake or asleep and they're quiet, you would give them a zero. If they're moaning or whimpering or offering occasional complaints, you would give them a one. If they're crying steadily, screaming or sobbing or offering frequent complaints, you would give them a two. Under consolability, if they're content and relaxed, you would give them a zero. If they're reassured by occasional touching, hugging or being talked to, or you can distract them, you would give them a one. Um, but if they're difficult to just console or comfort, you would give them a two. 
So that means that someone who has a 10 out of 10 pain based on this scale would present with a frowning face with a clenched jaw or quivering chin. They would have their legs drawn up or they would be kicking. They would be rigid or jerking. They would be screaming and sobbing and and almost constantly telling you how awful life in the universe is. And they, they would be incapable of being calmed, distracted, or, or, or consoled. So I find this to be kind of a, a very dramatic picture of, of pain. And if your pain is really acute, it might look this way. But if it's a chronic pain, it can be really severe when you have chronic pain. And you are not likely to ever look the way this 10 out of 10 um, presents. And I find it kind of puzzling because when we as patients are taught how to manage our chronic pain, you know, we're taught to use things like distraction for pain management. So if I am using my coping skills, I mean, psychology talks about coping skills, right? So if I'm using my coping skills and I'm playing video games or I'm listening to music or I'm talking to a family member and I'm being distracted from my pain, doesn't mean my pain's gone, but I'm not focusing on it. That means that I can't have a 10. And I think that's kind of bizarre because that's what we're taught to do when you have chronic pain. That's that's how we're taught how to cope with it. So I just find a lot of this is kind of weird. Um, and like under legs, when you say uneasy legs, what is that? That's super vague. Things like normal position. I, especially as somebody with EDS and, and autism, I... I don't know what you would consider a normal position. So if they seem relaxed, but they're in an unnormal position, do I still score them? I mean, so there's a lot of issues with this scale. I think in general pain scales are fraught with problems, but they're what we're kind of stuck with. So the last commonly used pain scale is the pain assessment in advanced dementia or the PAINDA. And it is usually only used for those who have cognitive impairments, but I feel that it is a better nonverbal pain scale than the FLAC, honestly, even for most children. However, I still can think of plenty of times that I was in severe pain and I was not presenting in the way that this scale suggests that a scale 10 would present. And this scale is absolutely designed for adults. And when you look at this and you compare it to the FLAC, there really isn't a large lot. There, there isn't a big difference. Um, so this one looks at breathing independent of vocalization, negative vocalizations, facial expression, body language, and consolability. And again, you can be scored a zero, one, or two based on how you're presenting. So under breathing, if you have normal breathing, you get a zero. If you have occasional labor breathing with short periods of hyperventilation, you get a one. If you have noisy labored breathing, long periods of hyperventilation and chain stoke respirations, you get a two. Under vocalizations, if you have none, you know, so you're not doing any sounds or making any complaints that are a negative quality, then you get a zero. If you have occasional moans or groans 
low level speech with a negative or disapproving quality, you get a one. If you have repeated troubled calling out, loud moaning or groaning or crying, you get a two. Under facial expression, if you're smiling or inexpressive, you get a zero. Um, if you have a sad, frightened, or frowning facial expression, you get a one. Facial grimacing is what gets you a two. Um, for body lang uh, language, if you're relaxed, you get a zero. If you are tense, pacing, or fidgeting, you get a one. Under two, it would be rigid, fists clenched, knees pulled up, pulling or pushing away, striking out. And then consolability, no need to console would be a zero. Um, if you can be distracted or reassured by voice or touch, that's a one. And unable to console or distract or reassure is a two. So in the context when we usually use this scale, it's in people who are incapable of telling us that they're having pain. These are people who have significant dementia, significant cognitive impairments, um, that they can't tell me where they are, who they are, why they're here. So their ability to communicate what's happening and their perception of their body is so impaired that they can't tell me when they're having pain. So in that context, this does have some value. However, the again, the picture that this paints is kind of puzzling to me, like under uh, breathing and it having chain stoke respirations to me is quite alarming because you only see chain stoke respirations in context of end of life. You know, if a person is not literally trying to check out of this universe, they are highly unlikely to be having chain stoke respirations. This is not something that you have just because you're in pain. So I, I think that this is an effort to try to capture the pain experience that you have at end of life, um, but it being included in the pain assessment kind of skews the assessment to a more dramatic appearance that you're just not going to see. I've never personally hyperventilated when I was in pain, and I really don't think that I've ever even experienced labor breathing from pain. So this idea of repeated troubled calling out, loud moaning, groaning, crying, you know, that's pretty reasonable. Facial grimacing, I don't know that everybody's going to do that. I don't know that I always do that. And I think this is where a lot of autistic individuals run into trouble with their pain not being interpreted is that we don't always make the facial expressions that people expect us to make in context of what we're feeling. So that a lot of times our faces do not express the way that a neurotypicals does and we don't get evaluated the same way. So I think that facial expression being one of the things that we use and body language being one of the things that we use is troublesome because like this idea of tense, distress, pacing, and fidgeting, that's just my normal state of being. And that's because of my ADHD. I'm just this constant movement machine and it has nothing to do with my pain levels. And yet it would it would score me on the pain scale just because I am consistently and constantly moving. And I find that kind of bizarre and puzzling. So I, I do think that these pain scales have a lot of issues, but unfortunately they are what we're stuck with. And I don't really have any solutions to this. I personally feel that 
in context of somebody not being able to tell us what their pain is, you do have to use some kind of nonverbal pain scale because the alternative is to just not medicate their pain. And that's absolutely not okay. So until we can come up with some kind of other way of doing it, you know, this is, this is what we got. So the next thing to know is that you do not have to ask for PRN medications, not even PRN pain medications. I have no idea where this weird idea comes from, but there is no rule that indicates that a patient must request a PRN medication in order to get it. In fact, that makes no sense and goes against most of the things that we commonly do in practice. Um, we usually have like a bowel regimen in place for patients so that they are offered bowel medications if they haven't had a bowel movement in three days or more. Um, we're not going to wait for the patient to ask for these medications. We're going to offer them once the criteria is met. I mean, one of the things that I do for every patient that I have is that when I am getting report, I always want to know when they had their last bowel movement and I'm going to evaluate right then and there, do I need to give them bowel meds at, as part of their HS or bedtime medications? You know, if I see that this person hasn't had a bowel movement in three days, then I'm just going to be like, oh, they're going to, I'm going to offer them some bowel meds when I give them their bedtime meds tonight. You know, I don't wait for them to tell me that they're feeling constipated. If they do tell me they're constipated, then yeah, I'll, I'll give them bowel meds, but I'm not going to wait for that. Um, we also don't wait for them to tell us that they need PRN blood pressure meds. Like PRN hydralazine is frequently a thing. Um, the doctor will order it so that if the systolic blood pressure goes above a certain number, we give the hydralazine to bring that blood pressure down and to regulate that blood pressure. So we're not going to wait for a patient to tell us that their blood pressure is elevated. We're just going to do that. It's going to be completely the healthcare providers who are going to handle that. You know, it's going to be most likely a CNA who's going to be checking those vital signs. And then they're going to tell the nurse what those vital signs are. I'm going to see that that systolic blood pressure is above the parameter. And I'm going to give that hydralazine. I'm not going to wait for a patient to tell me that their blood pressure is elevated because they probably don't know. So yeah, yeah, that's absolutely not a thing. Um, it is in fact the case that the majority of the time that I give a PRN medication, it's because I am offering it and then the patient hasn't asked for it. So how do PRN medications actually work? Well, there are three things that must happen in order for a patient to be given a PRN medication. The first thing is that they must meet the criteria set in the order. Every PRN medication will have a reason to give that medication included as part of the order. In order to get that med, the patient must meet that criteria written within the order. So if you have like a pain medication, it's going to be say something like Vicodin and it's going to say Vicodin PRN for pain. And that means that if you tell me you're having pain, you've met the criteria in order to get the Vicodin. So the second thing is that enough time must have passed since the last dose was given. Every pair on medication will have a frequency as part of the order. Within the order, it will state how often a medication can be given, such as every two hours, every four hours, or daily, etc. In order to get that PRN medication, the right amount of time must have passed since the last dose was given. So if you have an order for Vicodin and you're having pain, you've met the criteria, 
And if that order is for every four hours and it's only been two, I can't give you that medication. If it's been six, I can. And that frequency criteria has been met. So then the third thing is, is that the patient cannot be presenting with any adverse effects from the medication. Part of the nurse's job is to monitor their patients for adverse effects from the medications that we're giving. If a patient begins to have an adverse effect from a medication that we have given, whether it's scheduled or PRN, the standard is to not give that medication and to contact the doctor for an assessment. In order for a nurse to not give a PRN medication due to the concern regarding an adverse effect from a medication, you have to communicate with the doctor and have that adverse effect addressed. So holding or not giving the medication is not enough. So if you have an order for Vicodin and you tell me you're having pain, so you made that criteria and it's ordered for every four hours and it's been six, so you meet the frequency criteria, but I go in and I see that you're having some trouble breathing and you've got this rash on and you're itching a lot. I now see that there's a possibility that you're having an adverse effect from the Vicodin. I'm going to hold that medication. I'm going to tell you that I'm concerned that you're having an adverse effect from the Vicodin and that I'm going to go call your doctor before I do anything. So depending upon what the adverse effect is, they can change the medication to a different medication so that I can then medicate you and control your pain and will watch your adverse effect and make sure that it does go away now that, that the suspected cause has been removed. But other times it won't really matter because if you change to another medication within the same class, like if you change from one narcotic to another narcotic, you're likely to continue to have the same adverse effect. Like say you're constipated. If I change you from one narcotic to another narcotic, you're likely to continue to, to say constipated. So in that case, we are probably going to continue to give you the pain medication, but we're also going to give you a medication to help you have a bowel movement. So having an adverse effect and holding the medication is not enough. You have to do something to address that adverse effect, but know that that is a possible reason for them to hold the medication. So in order to get a PRN medication, you have to meet the criteria of why that medication needs to be given. You need to meet the criteria of enough time having been passed since the last dose and you need to not be having adverse effects from that medication. And if those criteria have been met, then the nurse needs to give you the medication. Uh, so what does this mean in practice? First, it means that if a nurse ever tells you that you need to ask for your pain medication because it is a PRN medication, they're wrong. Um, it also means that if you ask to be woken up for pain medication, this can in fact be done and is done with scheduled medications all the time. If a nurse refuses to wake you up for pain medication, you should ask them to instead wake you for a pain assessment. Make it clear that you want the nurse to come into your room and wake you up at set intervals to assess your pain. Um, having a regular pain assessment is a standard of practice and they're gonna have a difficult time justifying in their charting, not providing you with these regular assessments. In the end, if a nurse sticks to their guns and refuses to come in for regular assessments, you're going to be left to ringing for that pain medication. And there's no reason that you can't set an alarm. Um, on, we usually have our phone to let you know when that pain medication is due again and just ring for it. Ring for it whenever it's due.
So they're going to have a harder time, you know, telling you that you can't have that medication if you know that it's due and you're telling them that you need it. Uh, when you are in pain, it can be easy to lash out at those that are around us, but I promise you that you will get more from the nursing staff if you remain respectful and polite to them at all times. Nurses will be more likely to go out of their way to help you if they see that you're treating them as a person and that you are being respectful. And you want your nurse to be your ally. They are the ones that are going to be calling the doctor. They're the ones that are going to be bringing your medications. Um, and really, they're the ones that are going to be providing the, the, the direct care and the care that is going to have the most impact on your healthcare outcomes. So having a nurse on your side really matters. And having a nurse there to advocate for you is something truly powerful. So don't make them your enemy. Granted, a good nurse will do these things for you regardless of how you treat them. But remember that we're people too, and we are often working in really crappy and stressful situations. And this means that we are less likely to go that extra mile simply because we're going to be running on the chronic spoon shortage. In the end, there is no magical way to make sure that you're going to get the pain control that you need. But there are things that you can do to help um, and for the first thing is just be sure that you're advocating for yourself. Speak up. Um, and if you aren't somebody who can advocate for yourself, if you're not comfortable doing this, then be sure that you have someone there with you who can advocate on your behalf. Uh, don't be afraid to make a formal complaint if your pain isn't managed. And remember that there are patient advocates that can sometimes help you. And the last thing is to be sure that you are keeping an open line of communication with your doctors and your nurses. Because there are going to be times that your pain isn't managed well because it is too soon for the next dose or it's not safe to give you more medication. And these times suck, but they do happen because there is just a limitation in what we can do with medicine. Well, that's about it for my rambling today. Thanks for coming and spending some time with me. If you like what you've been listening to, consider listening some of the other episodes of the podcast and consider giving some support. It really does help. And until we talk again, you guys take care of yourselves. Bye.